Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for taking the time to join the call today. My name is Ryan McNamara, and I'm a consultant advisor here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Today, I'm excited to be joined by my colleague, Ben Mandel. Ben is an economist in our multi-asset solutions group, where he is responsible for formulating global tactical asset allocation views based on thorough analysis of the global economy. Ben has recently co-authored a paper on the impact of a global work-from-home labor force, where he explores how COVID-19 is prompting what might be lasting behavioral changes and shares his thoughts on investment implications of the increased work-from-home labor force. We will touch on some of the key takeaways from this piece and explore what exactly their implications are for institutional investors. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. To kick things off, Ben, let's get the State of the Union on COVID-19 and the economy. How has COVID-19 and the resounding wake of market volatility it has generated altered the way you think about and evaluate the economy? Thanks, Ryan. Let me just start by saying that I think it's difficult to overstate the degree of ramifications from the COVID shock. And I think that stands for the macro environment for sure, as we think about the economy and markets, how we're positioned in our multi-asset portfolios. I think it's also important to acknowledge the micro aspects of this, both on the professional front in terms of how we interact with our jobs at an individual level. And that's really the focus of the paper and how that adds up to something more macro, even personally. Just by way of quick anecdote, my great aunt always used to say that marriage is for better or for worse, but not for lunch. And so I've thought of that a couple of times over the course of these months at home, all of us together. And of course, don't worry about me and my marriage. Everything's fine. But it has really struck a chord in terms of how this has really changed the way we operate on a variety of levels. So to your question, let me start by talking about what we've learned and perhaps some more concrete near-term implications of COVID before going into the longer-term aspects of working from home and such. First, I think we've learned a little bit about the nature of the shock. When it first hit in, let's say, mid-March to late March, there was an ongoing debate about what is the shape of this shock, or how do you describe it? Is it a classical recession where growth craters and then gradually repairs, although that propagation takes some time, Or is it more of a natural disaster where you get an extremely sharp decline in activity, but then a very brisk period of payback as things start up again? I think the information we've gathered over the last few months have increasingly put weight on that latter story. It looks more like a natural disaster in terms of the rebound in May and June, both in the U.S. economy, but pretty much ubiquitously everywhere that has taken place. And so we've been thinking about this as a very fast-moving shock and one where we expect the next few months to be ones where growth globally is above trend, although perhaps decelerating from the really, really explosive growth that we saw in May and June. That brings me to my second point, which is that we've begun a new business cycle here, but that cycle is not going to be a normal one given the pace at which we've been moving through this shock. So as we kind of score where we are in the cycle, are we early, mid, late, or in recession, it was very clear that we were in recession in March and April. However, the speed of the rebound implies that we're moving very briskly through that early phase of the cycle. And it wouldn't be surprising if we were to extrapolate out from here 
to be sitting a year from now in an economy that's landed firmly in mid-cycle. And so those large unemployment gaps and output gaps are looking like they're going to close relatively quickly. And so some of the things we normally expect in the early stage of the cycle, both in terms of the economy and markets, might be sort of flash-in-the-pan type of phenomena. The underpinning for that recovery and something we expect to be more persistent and steady is that policy has been extremely supportive. And the rollout of the monetary policy tools that the Fed has put out there is still underway, and they continue to expand, extend, and reach further into the guts of the economy in terms of credit provision. And those facilities that they put into place, we expect to be a source of reassurance that we're not going to go back to those March-April levels of activity if and when they're activated. Maybe the final caveat to this is that the economy is one of above-trend growth. We're breezing through early cycle. Policy settings are somewhat supportive. The balance of risks as a result of that relatively positive story has swung a little bit more negative. And so our baseline case is one where we're fairly sanguine. The alternative case has been getting a little bit worse on a month-to-month level. You know, thinking about the second derivative of growth being less supportive, it's easier for markets to do well when growth is positive and accelerating, perhaps a little bit more vulnerable when it's positive but decelerating. We're obviously at the whim of the virus here, which we think about as a sequential issue. The left tail of that distribution is fairly well understood. We could be in a lower growth environment if the virus surges. The right tail of the distribution, which is the vaccine, just seems more distant in relative terms than that left tail. And, of course, policy, I mentioned monetary policy, fiscal policy has been an important ingredient in this recovery, and that's another contributor to that negative second derivative story. It's still going to be supportive, but much less supportive than it was as we move through the summer, and that's something where two months from now, after the final phase of fiscal relief is provided by the U.S. government, that's where I think things get a little shakier because that floor of support has been pulled out to some extent. And that, in turn, creates some gaps between the U.S. and growth elsewhere, where we think policy support is a little bit more steadfast. So adding all those up, we've been risk on in terms of posture in our portfolios. We've been spreading the risk out fairly evenly between equities and credit as a way of getting some access to that upside risk in the global economy as things repair, but also having, on a sharp ratio basis, some access to asset classes where if we're in that lower growth but okay growth environment, that they do okay, and that's the role of credit, especially in areas where there's an explicit or implicit backstop from monetary policy. Equities in the rest of the world has been an area of focus for us. We've increased our allocations to some of the cyclical markets, and Europe and emerging markets in particular. We're not all the way there in the sense that we've maintained an overweight to U.S. large cap as a bit of a security blanket with the idea that that's defensive if our baseline thesis ends up being somewhat off. And finally, just thinking about what are the hedges in portfolio, I think the bad news for multi-asset investors is that duration at current levels is not really giving as much support as it has historically. Stock bond correlations are still negative, but just looking at the day-to-day trading of the 10-year Treasury at about 70 basis points, you're not getting a huge payoff from that insurance policy from holding duration in portfolios. And so I think a key thing to think about, right, is if you're taking that risk on position, how do you hedge the downside in an environment where you're getting a little bit less bang for your buck from duration? So currency might be one aspect of it. Maybe mitigating the size of those overweights in risk assets might be another. But, of course, that's very idiosyncratic depending on the portfolio. Great. 
Thank you for that, Ben. Switching over to the paper, now the paper covered a number of topics in ways that the increasing situation of work from home for the workers is impacting economic measures, as well as what kind of investment implications may be generated from this new culture that has come about from the virus. I hate to ask you to choose from all your topics in what could be your favorite one here, but what are the key takeaways you see thematically from the piece on work from home, and what do you think is the most important investment implications and topics that have come out from this research? Yeah, thanks. I do love all my children equally, but I think from this piece of research, there are a few things that jump out. So let me just explain very briefly what we did. It's an empirical exploration of the capacity of the global labor force to work from home, which is of the same ilk as some of our long-term capital market assumption thematic research, which is geared towards low-frequency trends, which we expect to play out over the next decade or so. And the one that it's really most closely related to is tech adoption. Tech adoption is a linchpin in the assumptions in the sense that at the end of the day, you get out of markets what the economy is giving you. And so our long-term capital market assumption projections for bonds and stocks and everything that's, that's a spread to the risk-free rate is predicated upon what is the long-term economic outlook. And the thematic work we do is geared towards telling us something about productivity, something about labor force growth, something about inflation, the inputs to nominal growth, which then filter through into the different asset classes. And one of the toughest aspects of our job as macro forecasters in that framework is to think about, is productivity going to revert to more normal levels after a very disappointing period after the global financial crisis? There are a lot of things that drive productivity. Some of them are cyclical, some of them are structural, but there was a prevailing narrative given the very persistent underperformance of productivity that there was almost a fallow period for technological innovation and adoption, and that's a very negative implication in terms of secular productivity growth and margins and all of that in our forecast. And so we set about trying to back up our assertion in the assumptions that's a relatively positive one, which is that there is a wave of technological innovation and adoption underway. It has yet to show up in the productivity data, but we are using that as an upside risk to our macro assumptions in the context of the projections. So we did that in a few ways. One is we looked at e-commerce in the last edition of the assumptions, which we released in October. And in that piece, we tried to use an array of different data sources to prove, is that happening, right? Is e-commerce adoption really happening? And of course, it was happening even prior to COVID at a very rapid rate. 1% of uh, retail sales 20 years ago, now it's 11%. Our own proprietary data suggests it might be as high as 20%. And that was prior to this shock, which really accelerated it. Working from home is the other most visible aspect of that trend. And so, again, we set about to gather data on how many people can work from home and what are the underlying drivers of that trend. And so we constructed our own independent estimates of how many people work from home globally and look at the geographic distribution of those workers. I guess just to summarize the findings, we found several big gaps. There are gaps between working from home capacity and how many people actually do it. The Bureau of Labor Statistics published a really uh, interesting survey result two years ago where they said that about 25% of people do work from home, about 30% are able, 
But that actually was an overstatement in the sense that only 15% of people spent a full day per week working from home and only 9% at least one day a week. So it's actually not a very common thing, even though some people did it before. Our estimates of how many people are working from home today, given the stark choice that firms are facing to either work from home or lay people off, is somewhere in the 40 to 45% range. Our estimates based on the underlying drivers, so when we kind of take a more systematic approach across the different regions to say, what are the drivers of working from home? Internet penetration, service sector jobs, which are more intensive in working from home, higher education, it's a skill-biased technology after all, and younger populations who are more prone to or more willing to work from home as a generational preference. When we add all those up, we get estimates in the 37% range, or 35 to 40, I'd say, for all developed market economies. There's not a ton of dispersion across the rich world. And so one of the main themes here is that this is another very visible piece of evidence that the technological impulse that we've looked at as an upside risk in our projections is actually happening. We see convergence in those gaps somewhere from that 9% who do it once a week towards the 40% or so where we think the limit is in terms of who can work from home. And so thematically, that's a big beta story. You know, an accelerating wave of tech adoption is an upward impulse to growth, a downward impulse to inflation. And that's big news in the context of equilibrium interest rates, which are closely related to nominal growth, and also for firms where higher productivity generally means higher margins and also higher fair value PE. And so the big thematic takeaway is that we see scope for convergence over time after COVID is over, and that may well happen. The last thing I'll say just in terms of big themes is of convergence between emerging market economies and developed market economies. You know, the level of working from home ability is much higher in the developed world than the emerging world. And that's coming from big gaps in higher internet penetration, service sector orientation, higher education. Emerging markets are somewhat younger in terms of demographics, but that's not enough to offset all the other gaps that we've identified. And so developed market economies on average are 37% work from home labor force in terms of capability. Emerging markets are only about 24%. And so that's a gap which tells you something about the potential for convergence over time in the future. You know, we tell stories in the LTCMAs about EM convergence and productivity, and this is a very concrete example of that and helps justify at least the potential for those big growth gaps in emerging markets to hold in the future and offer some support for some of those internationally oriented themes that come out of our projections. Ben, you mentioned labor productivity and inflation a little bit in that last answer. Can you talk about the work-from-home culture and the impact it could potentially have on either wage growth or adjustments and how that may shape inflation expectations? Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll all find out in due course what the effect on wages is going to be. But I think in all seriousness, it could be relatively large as an effect in the near term and is playing into what has been a somewhat sleepy aspect of the forward-looking projections, which is inflation. I mean, we've been in a period over the last five years or so where inflation has been relatively low compared to where central banks want it to be, and you had an alignment of a lot of the factors that were driving inflation lower. So, you know, technology is one thing that could cause inflation to be lower, but you had a ton of slack in the economy after the global financial crisis. There's a debate about demographics pushing inflation lower 
Globalization seems like an obvious candidate. You know, when China joined the WTO in 2001, that corresponded with a lot of offshoring and some downward pressure on U.S. marginal costs. Inflation expectations, you know, just the efficacy of central banks pushing inflation higher when you're at the zero lower bound is simply lower. And so inflation expectations have languished near the low levels that are consistent with hitting the central bank targets. I think that story is starting to change as we think about those different drivers and where they're going. So, you know, obviously technology, to the extent that we're observing that in the real world now and in the data, is starting to push inflation lower. Slack, after this crisis, will play a part for some time in keeping inflation lower. But the other drivers have either been neutralized or are starting to push upwards. Demographic drag is not what it used to be five or ten years ago as we roll those projections forwards. Globalization has stalled, essentially, and in some places actually reversed. And so that effect on inflation seems to have changed course. Inflation expectations is an open question, but you can make an argument that the relative coordination between monetary and fiscal policy, in other words, the whiff of debt monetization might be one of those things that pushes inflation expectations upwards. And of course, one thing that we're starting to look at in a much more systematic way is climate change. So the policies to help mitigate very dire consequences 80 years from now, those policies tend to be relatively inflationary in the near term, insofar as the price of carbon goes up and pushes up the costs of an array of different goods and services in the economy. So what is that saying? We're sort of entering a period where you have a lot more heterogeneity in the drivers of inflation. The near term looks like those technology and slack forces will keep pushing lower. But the long term, so as we think about the 10 to 15 year forecast that we're trying to produce, the out years of that forecast, I'd say, has much more upside inflation risk than we've seen in recent years as those factors swing either to neutral or to the inflationary side of the ledger. And so it's one where I think there's more uncertainty about inflation over the 10 to 15 year period and quite plausibly even more inflation volatility, which has its own channel into the financial markets. And thinking about all this, are there certain sectors you see as winners and losers coming out of the pandemic and as work from home culture increases and as we hopefully move closer and closer to treating and ultimately eradicating the virus? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, so far we've been talking mostly about beta stories, so, you know, the effect on overall growth and inflation and EMDM convergence. But there are a lot of alpha stories as well that I would attach to this tech adoption in general and working from home in particular. And I'd probably group them into two groups. One is tech exposure. So what are the sector level exposures to that theme? And how do those add up into geographic exposures? In terms of sector weights, tech is 25% of the S&P right now. It's about 20% of Japan. It's about 16% of emerging markets. And so those are relatively heavy tech exposures. It does kind of move in the same direction as the EM convergence story. So if you believe that EM is catching up and will be able to leverage the technological frontier on the macro side and have a lot of homegrown firms that you get exposure to through the EM index, I think that is kind of setting up a story of relative thematic exposure to EM. I think there is a real question about S&P, which is obviously an exposure to tech, albeit one that 
you know, one of the active debates on our team right now is how defensive is the U.S. stock market given the narrow base of support from tech names. And I've seen just in terms of day-to-day trading on up days, you know, tech does well relatively. On down days, tech does well relatively. So there are definitely some shocks out there to which tech is relatively defensive. So thinking about the virus shock in particular, I think it also needs to be balanced on the other side with being vulnerable to other shocks, right? So regulatory changes, just valuations being relatively high, all that makes tech a little bit more prone to being sold off more aggressively in a more generalized risk-off environment. So I think we continue to debate the defensiveness of the S&P based on that tech exposure. But I think there are a bunch of stories. There are firm-level stories, sector-level stories, and geographic exposures that all make this a bit of a rich environment from an alpha perspective if you're able to pick those winners. The other one I would like to mention is urban de-densification. The other thing that might create winners and losers in a somewhat more micro level is the fact that, and this really hits home in New York City, is how dense is optimal in an environment where, you know, you have these big negative externalities from something like a virus. And there's an open question as to how the density of the major urban agglomerations is going to change over time and what the spillover effects are to the different stakeholders. So who's holding the bag for vacancy rates in the cities that go down and the prices that go down, right? Is that the banks? Is it the landlords? Is it the businesses themselves who have to relocate? I think there's an open question about the incidence of those losses, you know, and I think that's probably a good question for a specialist in real estate and private markets. What is the reallocation that's going to take place between real estate, where urban commercial seems to be an obvious loser here, not totally obvious on the residential side, where that de-densification is a bit of a wash between relatively dense urban areas and less dense suburban areas. And so a lot of questions about density and what that means for markets as well. One of the other questions that I have been getting from my clients and other colleagues that I work with have been talking about with their institutional clients is just really the incredible run that growth has had relative to value over the last several years. And there were talks towards the end of last year that there needs to be mean reversion at some point. We think that there are some opportunities in value. Clearly, that has not played out at all this year. And you mentioned the technology sector a number of times in your comments. Do you speak to growth versus value a little bit and your thoughts on relative out and underperformance of those two styles? Yeah, I mean, if you have to choose, I would say growth has a few things going for it here. Obviously, the secular winner story from tech is one thing. And I think if you kind of dig under the surface of the style description, a lot of that growth outperformance is just tech. And so let's give it a more direct attribution. I guess the other perspective on that is where you think rates are going. And not only that, but how fast is the cycle progressing? And so based on our comments at the beginning about monetary policy, we expect rates to be pinned for a very long time here. And so even as the economy recovers, the central bank's forward guidance is going to gear much more towards inflation. And so it's going to be less sensitive to those growth outcomes than it has been historically. So part of it is just rates are going to be low, and that's been correlated with relative performance of value. Where does value perform well historically? It's been at the incipient stages of business cycles when growth really takes root and broadens out. And it's that period precisely that's being squeezed here as we race through 
the early stages of the cycle. And so you want exposure to the secular winners. We expect rates to be pinned for some time, and the cycle is just lightning speed right now. And so any period of outperformance might actually be short if and when it does happen. And so that's kind of the case, I guess, if you'd want to make it for growth. I guess one countervailing point is that those aren't the only stories at the regional level that we deal with. And so thinking about Europe, for example, where, I mean, there's only a 12% exposure of euro stocks to tech in terms of sectoral composition. Europe and the U.S. are pretty much the same in terms of working from home capacity. They're at the frontier and growing relatively slowly compared to emerging markets. All that said, we still like Europe. We find reasons, and we're by no means secular, overweight Europe people. We've been underweight for years. But we're looking at a constellation of more supportive policy, kind of a collectivization of fiscal, which has been a big support and actually takes away that left tail risk and the risk premium associated with the euro area breakup. That's positive for an array of European assets as that dissipates. And, you know, in the near term, probably fiscal support remains a little bit more robust. And, you know, the euro probably appreciates versus the dollar. So all that is kind of good news for Europe from an unhedged dollar-based investor's perspective, even in the face of being a relatively high exposure to value and low exposure to tech. So, you know, it's an important theme in terms of tech exposure. I have to say it's not a dominant theme everywhere and always. One more for you, Ben. As you mentioned earlier in the call, we typically will publish our long-term capital market assumptions once a year in the fourth quarter. In the second quarter in April this year, your team put out an update to our long-term capital market assumptions for the first time mid-year. Can you talk about the impetus for the adjustments and the changes that were made and why you guys felt it was necessary to make those adjustments? Yeah, I think that's important to clarify. After 24 years of publishing on an annual frequency, we did a mid-year adjustment. And the reason is that we felt like we needed to adjust for the current prices of asset classes, which had swung so dramatically in the first quarter of the year. Just as a refresher, as we think about our long-term capital market assumptions, those projections are a function of equilibrium and steady-state objects. So, you know, what is the equilibrium bond yield if you're not going into or out of recession? What are fair value PEs? What are margins that we expect to persist over 10 to 15 years for firms? Those are steady state, very slow moving concepts. We have those and then we have current pricing. And our assumptions include the path from current prices to those equilibrium levels. And so when those prices swing around as much as they did, we decided to remark as of March 31st. Of course, in hindsight, we did manage to pick almost the bottom of the equity market for that remark. And so what the results were from that exercise, just changing the starting points around, was a continuation of the steepening of the stock bond frontier. So the efficient frontier steepened out even more than it did over the course of 2019 because bond returns had a massive rally. And the term premium, which had gone away, never to be heard from again, got even lower. And so on the bond side of things, returns got even lower from a forward-looking perspective. And on the equity side, some of those more richly valued markets had come down quite substantially. And so from a forward-looking perspective, valuation was less of a drag and in some cases an increment to our forecasts 
And so as a result, the implication was get back into equities on a long-term strategic time horizon. I guess everyone should have listened to what we said pretty much immediately because then you got this massive rally in risk assets. And if you were to remark today, that steepening wouldn't be quite as pronounced as it was a few months ago. Talking about fiscal and monetary stimulus, there's been quite a bit introduced into the economy and into the system this year. How long-lasting do you think the influence of that stimulus will be? The fiscal stimulus is fairly short-lived. I mean, no less important, but short-lived. And a lot of what we've seen in terms of the household side of the economy has been a function of that fiscal stimulus. And you can see that in the household saving rates here in the U.S., which surged to 30%. And that was a reflection of those transfer payments from the government, enhanced unemployment insurance. So even as you had this massive decline in real income from an ex-transfer perspective, those transfers were more than enough to fill the hole from an aggregate perspective. And so extremely meaningful boost in the near term, which we expect to wane over the course of the coming quarters. I think our expectation is that we'll get another stimulus package over the next month or so, which extends some of those enhanced unemployment benefits, but more to the tune of an extra $300 versus $600. So still supportive, but less supportive than it was before. And, you know, I think this this has raised a lot of really deep questions for us. A lot of speculation out there about how loose will fiscal policy remain in the future? In other words, are we entering a new regime where monetary policy is very accommodative and fiscal policy remains aggressive or at very least does not claw back that extra growth that it pumped into the system recently? And that coordination of monetary and fiscal policy raises a lot of thorny questions. Who pays for that? When do they pay for it? Is this something that's a generation away or within our 10 to 15 year outlook? Is it that whiff of debt monetization that actually pushes inflation expectations back upwards? In a perverse way, that would be a welcome development by central banks. And so I think the near-term effect is for fiscal policy to wear off pretty quickly. But I think we've opened up, you know, we've certainly captured a lot of imaginations with the idea that fiscal, not just in the U.S., but in Europe and elsewhere, is going to be much more aggressive and much more coordinated with monetary policy. And that could have very big ramifications for things like inflation in the long term. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. 
it should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am.jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, U.K., Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.